A few weeks ago, we started a new series uh, in the book of Exodus, and Exodus is a story about God calling his people out of something and calling his people into something. Uh, God calls his people uh, out of slavery, uh, into freedom. He calls his people out of uh, false worship, into true worship. He calls his people uh, out of darkness and into light. God is constantly calling his people out. And today, we find that God, he is calling Moses. He is calling Moses out of his fear and out of his failures. And he is calling Moses into trust and obedience. Uh, if you uh, recall from last week uh, in chapter 2, Moses, he was this figure uh, primed to be uh, the next great hero. I mean, Moses, he had the perfect situation. He had the perfect background. Uh, but instead of being that perfect hero, we find that Moses, he fails. Uh, he runs away. And he is now hiding in fear. And from about chapter 2 to chapter 3, just like that, 40 years go by. 40 years has elapsed. Now, it's at this point, after 40 years, God, he appears to Moses, and he calls him to go back, to go back to Egypt and to lead the people out. And of course, of course, Moses is resistant. He tries to rebuff God, and he does this five times. And I want to just today, this morning, look at the five ways in which he tries to rebuff God. The first thing that Moses says when God says, hey, I want you to go back. I want you to go and deliver my people. Moses asks the question, who am I? Who am I? Now, you know, with this question, there are two ways of asking this question, okay? Uh, the first way of asking this question is, who am I? As in, you know, do you know who I am, right? Uh, as if, you know, I am this great person. Do you know who I am? And usually we say this to other people, right? When someone cuts us off, we think, do you know who I am, right? When someone steals our parking spot, we think, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? This is the question that we ask other people. But there's another way on the other end of the spectrum of asking this question, and it is, who am I? As if, you know, I'm a nobody. And we usually ask this question, who am I, to ourselves and to God. This question that Moses is asking is on the other end. Who am I? It's a question that's rooted in fear. It's a question that's rooted in insecurity, in uncertainty, in personal inadequacy. Moses is asking God, who am I to do this? You know, it's not as if there isn't any history behind Moses and God's call. You know, the reason why Moses is in the wilderness is because he tried 40 years ago and he failed. But you notice how God responds. When Moses asks the question, who am I? God, he doesn't prop up Moses. He doesn't stroke his ego. God doesn't say, hey, 
You have all this experience. He doesn't say, hey, you know the land better than anyone. He says, hey, you are wiser than everyone. You can speak the language. He doesn't say, hey, Moses, come on, you're Moses. You know, God's not punching Moses in the chest saying, come on, you're Moses. You're the, you're the prince of Egypt. He's not trying to stroke his ego to get him to go. No, God doesn't mention anything about Moses. When Moses asks, who am I? God says, I will be with you. You see, God, he isn't calling Moses out of fear to confidence, but he's calling Moses out of fear to trust. I will go with you. Now, this should be enough for Moses, but then um, Moses, he has another question. He rebuffs in this way. He asks, who are you? Right. He asks, what if I go? And they ask me all these questions, and they say, what's your name? What am I going to tell them? Right. The first question is, who am I? And the second question, who are you? And this is how God responds. He says, tell them my name is this. I am who I am. Now, this needs some explanation. Um, this word, I am, that you find underlined is actually, uh, in the, translated in, in, in the Hebrew, is actually the first person singular of the stative verb to be. Now, that's a mouthful, but I just wrote it out. It's the first person singular of the stative verb to be. In English, we have the stative verb to be, right? So, I am, you are, he is, they are, right? This verb that we use to, to speak of this, this state that we are in. And when God says, hey, my name, you want to know my name? He says this, my name is to be, to be. Now, we have to ask the question, why doesn't God have a normal name? And I, I know nowadays we like to get very, very clever with names. And so, you know, we find people tend to stay away from traditional names, right? And, and they get very clever and they like to use uh, adjectives instead of proper nouns, right? So you find names like justice and noble, right? You find names that are, you know, you find people named after maybe like the seasons, like autumn and fall or months, like December, right? We have right here. Uh, you know, when, when, uh, when my wife and I, when we had our third kid or when we were expecting, you know, I really wanted to name my son uh, after this really old English name. Uh, we wanted to name him Ransom. <laughs> ransom. Not, not Ransom as in giving my son back Ransom, right? But Ransom as in Jesus was a ransom for our sins, right? Ransom. What, a, what an amazing name. But every time I, I told people, you know, I want to name my kid Ransom, you know, my wife, she would hate it. And everyone I would tell, they would say, no, please don't do that. Please, we beg you, don't name him Ransom. And the reasoning behind that was because he's going to get made fun of. They're going to make fun of him so much. And, you know, I kept telling myself, you know, Good. That's going to make his identity so secure in Jesus, you know. I kept picturing this guy, Ransom, this young little boy, you know, after getting made fun of at school, he's walking home by himself, and, you know, he's, you know, after being made fun of, he's, he's reciting that nursery rhyme, right? Like, sticks and stones may break my bones, but Christ has ransomed my, you know, Christ has ransomed me, the cornerstone, or something like that, you know. He's, like, reciting this, this rhyme to himself. Uh, you know, but after speaking to a number of people, they said, hey, don't do that. That's just too out there. 
And so we decided, you know what, let's just name them after a location. <laughs> so that's what we did. But, you know, God, you know, a name that's more out there, I think, than Ransom is the name to be. To be. You know, when God says, my name is I am, you know what God is trying to communicate here? He's trying to say, I am. He's saying, I am existence. I am. In other words, God is trying to say, you want to know my name? You want to know who I am? He's saying, I am. In other words, I exist. He's saying, I am this self-sufficient, this self-existing, this completely independent being in need of nothing and dependent upon nothing. He's saying, my name is I am. I am. This is where uh, his name Yahweh, you know, you know uh, one of God's name is Yahweh, and that's where the name comes from. Yahweh is actually the third person uh, singular of this verb to be. God is saying, my name is I am, I exist. I am creator, and there's nothing that I need to be. I am. You know, not only uh, does God, he say my name, you know, not only does he say I am, but he says it twice. He says, I am who I am. Or, you know, other translations are I am uh, who I, you know, I, I am who I will be, or um, I am that which I am. He says it twice. I am who I am. In other words, he's saying I am existence and I will always be existence. He's saying, I am, my, I am this self-sufficient self, and I will never change. He is and was and will always be. You know, God has different names throughout the Bible. Sometimes he is called warrior. Sometimes he says, my name is warrior. Sometimes he says, my name is healer. Sometimes he says, my name is banner. Sometimes it is Emmanuel, God with us. Sometimes it is shalom, peace. But here in Exodus 3, before a very timid and fearful Moses, God reveals himself as the absolute essence of all things, his quintessential name. He says, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. You know, this is the reason why, you know, God, he appears to Moses in this burning bush, right, this strange burning bush. You know, one of the things that's needed for fire to burn is uh, fuel, right? For, for fire to burn, it has to burn on something, right? And in this case with the bush, it has to burn on the wood. But when Moses comes over to see this bush that's burning, but... It's not using up the fuel. The bush isn't actually burning, but there's this fire amidst uh, the bush. Moses is thinking, what a strange sight. What is that? And that's actually God. He is symbolically showing who he is. He's saying, I am. I don't need this bush to burn. I exist. And like this fire that doesn't need the bush, yet is among the bush, yet is within the bush, he's saying, I am just like this fire. I am. I don't need or depend upon you or anything, but I will be within you. I will be among you. I will be with you, Moses. Now, surely this should have been enough. Moses should have been able to trust and obey God. 
But we have to remember that Moses, he's not only dealing with fear, he's also crippled by failure. So Moses, he rebuffs a third time, and he says this, what if they don't believe me? What if I go and tell them, I am has sent me? And they say, no, he did it. He didn't appear to you. You know, Moses, this, you know, this, this dialogue with the Lord, he is thinking of every scenario at this point. First he asks, who am I? And then he asks, who are you? And then he asks, what about them? What if they don't believe me? And I think this is symptomatic of someone who has experienced failure, like Moses, trying to come up with every single excuse, trying to find every angle to convince yourself or the other person that it's not going to work. You know, failure has left such a large dent in Moses' life when he hears this call, when he sees this fire burning in this bush, but not actually burning, when he hears the name I am, Moses, he is still afraid. He's still crippled by failure. And he says, what about them? And so God, he gives Moses three signs. And these are all signs of transformation. He gives them a sign where, you can turn, where he can turn his staff into a serpent, clean skin to leprosy, and water to blood. God equips Moses. He gives him what's necessary. But still, still that's not enough. Moses, he rebuffs a fourth time. He says this, I am not eloquent. You know, if you look at verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10, You know, notice what he says. He says, I have never been eloquent. And he says this, I have not been eloquent in the past or even now as you have spoken to me. You know what Moses, when he brings up the past, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about that moment in chapter 2 when he had the chance to liberate his people, but he failed. He's talking about that interaction that he had with his own people where he wasn't eloquent enough. And when he tried to be their savior, the people rejected him. You know, this, this, this probably haunted Moses every day. You know, he had probably played that scene back in his mind, in his head every night, regretting every single word he said, wishing he could go back in time and use different words or use different uh, nuances. He wishes that he can go back and persuade them. If he had just the right words, if only he was eloquent at that moment. You know, Moses, he's speaking of his past. You know, with some confidence, I can say, that these thoughts, I am not eloquent in the past or in the present. These thoughts are the thoughts of perhaps every preacher and every evangelist. If only I can go back and redo that sermon. If only I can go back and re-say what I said. If only I could have been a bit more eloquent. Those who facilitate Bible study or teach in Sunday school, I'm sure you can resonate. If only I was eloquent. And this is how the Lord responds. Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I? You know, I love God's response here because he says, he not only does it say, who has made man's mouth, 
but he also talks about the recipient who has made him deaf, who has made him seeing, who has made him bl- uh, seeing, or who has made him blind. Not only does God say, who has made the mouth, but he says, who is the one who makes the person see and hear? In other words, the Lord is saying, not only am I in control of the speaker, but I am in control of the one who receives the word. I am the one who makes one hearing and who makes one seeing. I am the one who has given you your mouth, so go. Go, I will be with your mouth. Now, Moses should have gotten it by now. I mean, if God can transform a stick to a serpent, right, clean skin to leprosy, water to blood, could he not do the same with Moses? But finally... Moses, he rebuffs the fifth time, and he says what's really on his mind. He says, send someone else. Send someone else. First, it's, you know, who am I? Then it's, who are you? And then he says, what about them? And then he says, I'm not good enough. And then finally, he says, send someone else. You know, Moses, you know, he says, I'm not eloquent in speech. I think he's quite eloquent in making excuses. (laughs) He is really, really good at trying to rebuff God and persuade him otherwise. He says, send someone else. You know, imagine if you ask someone to do something for you, right? And you've prepared everything and you've made all the right phone calls, you've finished all the transactions, you've prepared everything right, and you've asked them to do this favor, and they just kept coming up with lame excuses, right? We know that person, right? Always coming up with that lame excuse. Listen, I just need you to do this for me, please. Everything is set up. Can you just do this? And there's always this person with lame excuses. I mean, what would you say to them? What would you say? Now, I would borrow words from the world's greatest boss, Michael Scott, and I would look at the person, and I would say, Why are you the way that you are? (laughs) Why are you like this? Why are you like this? You know, this text tells us that God, he was angry with Moses at this point, but he gives Moses an an, an intermediary to speak on his behalf, Aaron, his older brother. And I'm not sure if God intended this, but maybe, maybe at the mention of Aaron, his older brother, it hits Moses deep. Perhaps it reminded Moses that his family, his people, his kin were still in slavery. And so Moses, he lets go of his failure. He lets go of his failure that produced fear, and he lets go of his fear of failure. And he begins his journey to trust and obey the Lord. Now, with this story that we find of of God calling Moses and commissioning Moses, I'm not sure how much of this speaks to you this morning. Maybe you never thought of yourself to be in Moses' shoes. Maybe you think, hearing a call from God, that's not me. You know, some of you are probably thinking, you know, I'm not the type of person who's been called by God to do anything. And you're thinking, you know what, it's just so hard for me to even come out on a Sunday. It's a miracle that I'm even here. God's not calling me to do anything. But friends, that is not the case. I say that confidently. 
Because, you know, the amazing thing is when we get to the New Testament, you know, Jesus, what we find is he picks up on all the themes that we find here in God's call to Moses. He reiterates all of these themes, and then what he does, he extends this call, not just to one particular individual, but he extends this call to everyone. Remember in Matthew 28 when Jesus, uh, you know, as, as the gospel is closing, as he commissions his disciples to go to the nations, to go and make disciples, as he calls them to go forth, teaching them to obey. Do you remember Jesus' words? I mean, the disciples were probably thinking, Jesus, we're just fishermen. Who are we? And Jesus says, I will be with you to the end of the age. Remember in our series in John not so long ago, there's this one scene in John 8. People are wondering, Jesus, who are you? Who are you? Where are you from? And, you know, you can tell us about you. Come on, tell us. Who are you? And remember what Jesus says at the end of chapter 8? He says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. You know why he says, I am? Because that's the name of God. I am. And when the Israelites hear this, they say, no. Did you just say that you're God? And they pick up stones to kill him. Or remember in John, 9, or John 18, when Jesus is about to get captured in the garden, Judah, uh, Judas and, and all the soldiers come to Jesus, right? And Jesus says, who are you seeking? And they say, we are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. I am. And you know what happens? The soldiers who had come to capture Jesus, they fall back and they fall down in worship. Why? Because Jesus said, I am. We find it all throughout the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus saying, I am, I am. He's saying that he is fully God. He is self-sufficient, self-existent. That he does not need us. But in mercy and in love, just as in the case with Yahweh in Exodus 3, he hears the cry of his people, he sees his people in bondage to sin, and in love and mercy, he comes to dwell with his people and to save them. Just like the burning bush, Jesus, he comes down to us, not because it profits him, not because he needs us, but because he had mercy upon us. You know, we find Jesus reiterating these themes over and over. I mean, in, 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 uh, in Mark 13, Jesus talks about how, you know, some, some of his disciples, they will be captured and, and they'll be persecuted and they'll be brought before kings, rulers of the world to testify. And you know what Jesus says, just as in the case here? He says, hey, don't be anxious on that day because I will give you the words to speak. You know, what Jesus does in the New Testament is he takes this call of Moses and he transforms it to be a kingdom call, to be a gospel call, to be now a call to discipleship. And he takes this call to this one individual and he, now he extends it to everyone. 
we who are now all priests and prophets, so that, as Peter says, we may proclaim the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Simply put, what is true for Moses with God is now true for all of us in Christ Jesus. God, he is calling us out of fear and failure, and he's calling us into trust and obedience to the gospel call. You know, I don't know exactly where everyone is at this point, but I do know with some level of certainty that this is true, uh, that you are in very, very similar situations as Moses. I know that some of you are in very, very similar situations. You were once passionate and eager to do something for the kingdom, to answer the call of the gospel, but maybe there was failure. Or maybe you're fearful. Or maybe, just like Moses, too much time has gone by. Forty years, and now you're settled. You know, in college, I had this really, really close group of friends. And uh, this is when, you know, many of us came to know the Lord. And we were just so, so passionate for the gospel's call. I remember, you know, in those days, we would pray for hours at a day, not for any legalistic reasons, but because we just enjoyed it and we wanted to pray for each other. I mean, we would go on mission trips together. We would go out and lead Bible studies together. I mean, there was this one occasion where uh, we found out that someone we knew couldn't pay for his college tuition. And without hesitation, that group of friends, we took out everything in our bank account to zero, and we gave him this, this, this money and said, here, pay for college. And it wasn't anything in us that we were, you know, because we were these great, great Christians, but we read of this in the early church, and we said, you know, we want to do this. And most of all, I mean, this group of friends, our college friends, we were so compassionate for non-believers. But now, you know, it's so awkward to see them because most of them are just barely hanging on by a thread. And, you know, when we would get the time to sit down and talk, you know, I would ask, hey, man, what happened? What happened? And you know what, you know the answers that they would say? You know, they would say, I've been out of it for so long, I'm just so fearful. Or they would say something like this, you know, I, I think I've failed. I failed the Lord. Or another thing, this is a very, very common answer. You know, I hear things like, you know, I say, Stephen, life happened. Life happened, man. I got a job, and the real world isn't like that. You know, they would try to wake me up and say, you know, it's because you're a pastor. You're so naive. <laughs> the real world isn't like that. They would say, you know, I got married. I have kids. I can't do that anymore. You know, if I'm completely honest with you this morning, I see that passion and that earnestness to trust and obey has also subsided in me. And more often than not, I act out of fear and the prism of failure than I would like to. But you know, one thing, God did not look at Moses and say, man, he's just too old now. 
You know, God didn't look at Moses and say, man, he had his time in the sun. When he was 40, he was full of potential and vigor. When he was 40, I could have used him. But now, I mean, just too much time has passed. He's got a family. He has kids. He's, he had a stable job for 40 years. How can I take a man out of a job? How can I take a man out of a job that he's been in for 40 years? You know, God didn't look at Moses and say, you know what, I'm not going to bother him. I'm just going to let him live his life and end it peacefully in the hills of the Midian Mountains. No, he didn't do that. If you think that any life stage, whether it's grad school or family or relationships, if you think that any age is going to deter God from calling you to trust and obey, you are wrong. If you think your mistakes, your fears, your failures are going to cause God to pass you by, you are wrong. Wherever you might be at this point in your life, the Lord, he calls you out of fear, out of failure, or maybe out of just futility, of just having life go by. And he calls you to obedience and trust. Now, I just want to be clear. I'm not saying this morning that everyone has to leave everything and go out to the field. That's not biblical, too. I know 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, he speaks on when one becomes a believer, that he or she should not change their circumstances. Right? He says, hey, just because you become a Christian, that doesn't mean that you ought to change everything about your life. He says, no, when you become a Christian, acknowledge that God has called you there. See now how the circumstances that you are in, the situations that you are in, how they now become your respective mission fields. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, answer the call of the gospel in the places that God has called you with and with the resources that he has given to you. And, you know, I have to constantly remind myself and my friends about this. You know, when, when back then all we did was talk about the kingdom, all we did was talk about winning souls for Christ, and now when we gather, all we do is talk about careers. We have to constantly remind ourselves that God has called us there to still win souls, that God has called us there to be salt and light, to, pre to prevent decay and to shun darkness. When we gather and all we do is talk about our children, our children, our children, we have to remind ourselves that God called us not to raise children, but God called us to raise disciples. And so this morning, I say to this congregation humbly to stop making excuses. You know, like Moses, we can say that we're not gifted. We can say that we're not eloquent. But, you know, we can be so gifted in making excuses. You know, someone once told me, you know what my gift is? My gift is getting distracted easily. You know what my gift is? My gift is saying no. You know, and I think so often we can, you know, persuade ourselves with this idea that, you know, that God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. And sometimes we use that as an excuse. God doesn't need me. You know, we can say that all we want, but that doesn't mean that God hasn't called you. He calls you to trust and obedience this morning. Would you trust in his sufficiency? Would you trust and would you follow him as Christ has called us to be his disciples? Join me in prayer this morning.